0: Welcome to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast, where you will find sermons, devotional thoughts, and current event conversations, all based on a biblical worldview. Good morning, morning. and happy Sabbath to you. It's been an interesting week for me putting this together. Let me tell you what, Daniel 8 is packed, packed. We're not gonna unpack all of it. We're gonna focus in on what I believe is the central point and part of Daniel 8. It's actually a little bit dark, but we're also gonna talk about the hope, the true hope that there is in Jesus Christ in this presentation as well. Now, as we've looked at the previous chapters of the book of Daniel, there is one theme that continues To surface over and over again. God is in control. I want to say before I start this that I'm actually quite indebted to C. Mervyn Maxwell and his book God Cares in regards to the book of Daniel. It's a two-volume set. If you don't have it it's it's worth buying, it's cheap enough, and it's a good read. But I'm very much indebted to C. Mervyn Maxwell for the construct that he used from which I was able to extract some of what we're gonna talk about today. So it's kind of a means of introduction and starting off what we're gonna be talking about today. I'd like to provide a little bit of uh, an overview of Daniel chapter eight. Daniel eight records a vision that Daniel was given in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, whose kingdom we saw come to an end in chapter five. It's going to be actually from the time that Daniel received this vision, another 12 years before Babylon is gonna be overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire. In Daniel's vision, he finds himself at Sushan, at, at the citadel of Shushan, located in the province of Elam, and he's standing by the river Ulai. Now, as in chapter seven, Daniel's vision now employs beasts to depict world powers once again. And Daniel's vision parallels Nebuchadnezzar's vision of chapter two, as well as his own vision from chapter seven, with one notable exception. The vision does not include Babylon. Certainly Daniel must have also known that Babylon was seeing the last of its days and at this point, actually, there is no, no need to talk about it. Rather, it does open up with a two-horned ram, which we later find out depicts the Medo-Persian Empire. It's interesting, by the way, that the location of Daniel's vision, that is in Sushan, by the
1: river Ulai,
0: was actually considered quite a prize by the Medo-Persian Empire. And it actually became a winter capital for that kingdom. So uh, it's interesting that he not only finds himself in that location, but the first thing he sees in vision is, in fact, that which represents the Medo-Persian Empire. Chapter 8 tells us of a two-horned ram that's attacked by an enraged male group, goat, I should say, with a single notable horn between its eyes. The goat destroys the ram with great speed and fury and becomes very great itself When the goat becomes strong, the single horn is broken and replaced by four other horns toward the four winds of heaven. Next is depicted a little horn that arises not out of one of the other horns, but arises actually out of one of the four winds. Now, I'm not going to go into the theological reasons for all that, but nonetheless, it didn't really come out of one of those, but rather arose up uh, out of one of the four winds. And in this case, we're going to find us to the west. It becomes great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Of this little horn, it is also said that it magnified itself, even up to the prince of the host. Now, what this horn did, the sanctuary and the obliteration of Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, features prominently in this particular chapter. Who is the little horn of Daniel chapter 8? I'm going to get right to the point. The little horn of Daniel 8 is Rome. And let's consider some of the proofs that it's in fact Rome. Let's review its rise to power and what it did. First of all, on the basis that succeeding visions in Daniel are parallel and progressively magnify one another. As Rome follows Greece in both chapters 2 and chapter 7, we can deduce that the little horn of chapter 8 represents Rome. Now, have you noticed that while Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greek are mentioned by name in the book of Daniel, that Rome itself is not specifically named at all? We are left to study and discover not only the successor of the kingdoms of divided Greece, but the activities and phases of the Roman Empire. Daniel 8.23 in the NIV, in Daniel twenty-three of the NIV, the angel Gabriel states, and in the latter time of their kingdom, that is referring to the four horns of Alexander the Great's divided kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, and who understands sinister schemes, and that is referring to the little horn. We can note right now that Rome rises to prominence at the later end of the dominion of the Hellenistic kingdoms. Now, in verse 9 of Daniel 8, it tells us that out of one of them, that is referring to one of the four winds of heaven, came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. In other words, the little horn came from the west. We know that Rome lies to the west of the divided Hellenistic kingdoms. And in addition to these facts about Rome, we also know that the Bishop of Rome became the natural successor to the Roman Emperor. As we examine the activities of the Little Horn, we'll find that the Little Horn represents both pagan Rome and its successor, the Roman Catholic Church and its pontiff. As we review what the Little Horn did, we will receive confirmation that the Roman church features prominently as included in the little horn power. It's this aspect of the little horn that is his most concern to Christians. So what did the little horn do? Daniel 8, 11, it says concerning the little horn that it magnified itself even up to the prince of the host and the continual burnt offering was taken away from him, him meaning the prince of the host, and the place of his sanctuary overthrown. If you have any question who the prince of the host is, it's referring to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the host was given over to it together with the continual burnt offering through transgression, and truth was cast to the ground, and the horn acted and prospered. Now, I want to reread verse 11, but this time I want to use the New King James Version because it really gets to the point, one of the points in, in what we've just read. He, that is referring to little horn, exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away in the place of his sanctuary, was cast down. Now, both pagan Rome, and the Roman church magnified themselves against the prince of the host. Pagan Rome crucified Jesus Christ. And the Roman church displaced him. Both pagan Rome and the Roman church took away the continual burnt offering. And the place of his sanctuary. Pagan Rome did this literally when in A.D. 70 the temple of Jerusalem was burned and raised to the ground. But how did the Roman church and its head, exalt himself as high as the prince of the host? How did the Roman church take away the continual burnt offering? And how did the Roman church throw down the place of the princes that is Jesus' sanctuary? To answer these questions, from the Roman church's perspective, reference is made to the Baltimore Catechism. The Baltimore Catechism reliably represents... formalized church doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church as agreed at the Council of Trent in 1545 through 1563. For those of you not familiar with the Council of Trent, it was a coming together of leaders of the Roman Catholic Church to deal with the issues that were coming out of the Reformation, and it was to come together and decide and to formalize the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church. So the council's decisions represent the traditional teachings much of which we still have today. The first question we ask that is how did the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope exalt himself as high as the Prince of the Host is actually fairly easy to answer. Catholics were, are, taught that the Pope is the supreme head of the Church invested as the vicar of Christ and successor of Peter with full power to rule the church like a king. That comes from the Baltimore Catechism Any if you want to go ahead and get a copy of it and read it, you would look at section 137, 148, and 162 for confirmation of that. Once in a while, by the way, we get a glimpse of the power behind the power And not surprisingly this particular characteristic of the Roman Catholic Pope calls to mind Isaiah 14 verses 13 through 14 which says for you have said in your heart I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of of the clouds. Again, sometimes we get a glimpse behind the curtain. Now to answer the next two questions, we need to understand a specific Hebrew word and how it relates to the sanctuary. That Hebrew word is tamid, spelled T in, in, in Anglicized English, it's T-A-M-I-D, tamid. The words translated continual burnt offering in the Revised Standard Version don't fully account for the meaning of this word or its implications within the context of verse number eleven. Tamin does not mean continual burnt offering. Tamin simply means continual. I'll give you a little warning. Translations of the word into more than continual have been influenced by the notion that a short-lived, rather mediocre ruler of the Seleucid Empire between seven hundred I'm sorry. 175 and 164 B.C. named Antiochus Epiphanes is the little horn of Daniel 8. Now, in short, the notion gained popularity is meant to divert attention from the Roman pope represented as the little horn. And Unfortunately, we don't have the time to discuss the rather poor case made for Antiochus Epiphanes being uh, represented by the little horn. But we will settle for proving the Roman Catholic Church and its pontiff, without question, are represented by this little horn. But first, I wanna discuss the Tamid in terms of the all of the time ministry of Jesus Christ. Within Daniel 8, Tamid is used as a symbol and it has far-reaching implications. It represents the continue that is the all of the time ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. So before proceeding further let's review the minister of Jesus Christ. We're indebted to the author of the book of Hebrews, whom I believe by the way is Paul, for revealing the ministry of Jesus Christ in the sanctuary. The message of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is our High Priest. He is ministering on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. Let's review key features of Jesus' ongoing ministry. First of all, Hebrews chapter three, verse one, and reading from the New King James Version. And You'll see, by the way, through the presentation that I change versions, because some of them speak a little bit better to what, what we're trying to communicate than others. And again, remember, we're dealing with a little bit of confusion that's in there among interpreters who have had a preconceived notion that Antiochus Epiphanes was, in fact, a little horn. But uh, nonetheless, here, out of the New King James Version, chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews 8, verses verses 1 and 2, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So Hebrews 7 verses 21 through 25, oops, excuse me, again, makes two interesting points about Jesus' continual ministry. First, verse 21 and 22 speak of Jesus' priestly ministry of a better covenant in terms of it being forever. And likening it to Melchizedek's priesthood. You may recall recall Melchizedek was in fact the priest of Salem to whom Abraham offered tithe. And it's interesting, Melchizedek actually makes a good A good representation here that there is no biblical record or otherwise of Melchizedek's birth or his death. So he serves as a fitting analogy of a priesthood without beginning and end or end. Second, it makes the point in verse 23 that the priests in the earthly tabernacle were prevented from continuing their ministry because of death. But Hebrews 7 verses 24 and 25 say, but he, referring to Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is always, I'm sorry, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we find the priesthood of Jesus has no end and he is continually available to us as he serves as our true high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Now, turning turn to the Old Testament, though Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 25 make a contrast between Jesus' continual ministry and non-continuing ministry of the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priesthood was designed by God to be as continuous as it could humanly be meaning that because the priests died, they were not able to continue forever themselves, but had to pass it down from one to another. Numbers 28, verse 3 reads, And you shall say to them, This is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, a year old, without blemish, day by day as a continual offering. Now, Many, including some theologians, have restricted the meaning of tamid to these offerings and have missed the fuller meaning within the sanctuary service. So we'll continue. In 1 Chronicles 16, verse 40, Revised Standard Version says, To offer burnt offerings to the Lord upon the altar of burnt offering continually morning and evening according to all that is written in the law of the Lord which he commanded Israel. So the morning and evening burnt offering, symbolizing Jesus' atoning sacrifice, are to be offered continually. These represent the continuing availability of the atoning sacrifice offered up in Christ on Calvary's cross. He is always, always, always available to us. There's not a time that he is not. In regard to tending the lamps in the holy place, Leviticus 24 verse 2 in the Revised Standard Version says, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light might be kept burning continually. A study of the sanctuary will reveal that the lampstand represents the ministry of Jesus Christ is the light of the world and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring to mind and to teach all truth that Jesus has taught. In 2 Chronicles 2, verse 4, Solomon, speaking to Israel about building the sanctuary, says this, Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God and dedicate it to him for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him and for the continual offering of the showbread and for the burnt offerings morning and evening on Sabbaths and on new moons and the appointed feasts of the Lord our God as ordained forever for Israel. The showbread represents Christ and the Word of God is contained in the Holy Scriptures which is available to us continually. Roman Catholics weren't allowed to read the Bible. An element of the continual taken away. Exodus 28 verses 29 and 30 say this. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to continual remembrance before the Lord. We are by means of accepting Christ part of spiritual Israel. And as such, Jesus continually bears our names upon his heart as he ministers in the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf. So every aspect of the priesthood and the services of the desert tabernacle and the later temple at Jerusalem were designed to teach us about Christ's continual ministry on our behalf before the heavenly Father you now understand when Daniel 8 is speaking about the little horn power taking away the continual offering, what he did? He did not just take away the sacrifice of Christ. He took away the whole complete ministry. So let us conclude that it is Christ's high priestly ministry that is as vital to our salvation As was his death on the cross. Now some Christians believe that Jesus died in order to provide justification by faith. Well that is in fact true but it's not complete. More specifically in the book of Romans verse 4, I'm sorry chapter 4 verse 25 the NIV, it says this, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 5, verse 10 says, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We we're reconciled to Jesus, to God, by Jesus' death on the cross. We are saved through his life and ministry on our behalf. Now, ask yourselves this question, by the way. It's kind of an interesting illustration. What's more important, Christ's death on the cross or his living ministry? Here's what we might be asking. We might as well be asking. What's more important to an airplane, its engine or its wings? They're both fundamentally irreplaceable and essential. Fully as essential as the cross is Christ's continual ministry, his tamid. Reading from the NIV. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I will add to that continually. So Christ's priestly ministry was completely obscured, obliterated by the little horn. Let's address now how the Roman Catholic Church fulfills the activities of the little horn power. The question, did Christian Rome actually trample on the continual ministry of Jesus Christ in the heavenly sanctuary? So to answer that question, we need to look back once again at the doctrinal decisions of the Council of Trent. And recall that while some ecclesiastical reforms were achieved, and there were a few, the church retained almost all the basic teachings of medieval, I should say traditional teachings, which are important of medieval Christianity. Once again, we'll look to the Baltimore Catechism to provide the basis for understanding Catholic teaching. While there are a number of shared beliefs between Roman Catholics and Protestants, there's some very significant differences and the following teachings are key to our discussion of the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church. Regarding the Lord's Supper, which they refer to as the Eucharist, The church teaches that the bread undergoes a change into the body and blood of Christ. That doctrine is known as the doctrine of transubstantiation. It taught as well that both body and blood are present in the bread. Wine was not part of the Lord's supper. It is taught that the mass is the same sacrifice as the sacrifice of the cross, although there is no pain, and even though Christ's blood is present The sacrifice is unbloody. You can look at the Baltimore Catechism in sections 350, 359, and 360. That's a strange thing to us, isn't it? Hebrews 2, verse 27, the second half, the New King James Version states in regard to Christ's sacrifice that he did once for all when he offered up himself. Christ is not crucified over and over and over again. Yet Roman Catholics that share the Mass believe that he is at every single Mass every day of the week. Another one. At death, unrepentant sinners are assigned to hell to ride there forever with the devil in flames. Repentant sinners are assigned to purgatory to suffer for unknown but often extensive Periods of time in preparation for heaven. But fear not. Masses for souls in purgatory can be performed at the request of the living and serve to reduce their suffering. It's the Baltimore Catechism, Sections 173, 184, and 185. Now this somewhat dealt with today's current current form of indulgence, but it is the same thing. That is, to say mass, which generally costs you a fee to be able to minimize or reduce someone's time in purgatory. This particular belief replaces Christ's sanctifying ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. No need, buy your way out. Catholics were taught that the Pope, and number three, Catholics are taught that the Pope is the supreme head of the church. Invested as the vicar of Christ and successor of Peter with full power to rule the church like a king. Baltimore Catechism. Section 137, 148, and 162. This displaces Christ by making the Pope co-regent with Christ over the church. He becomes the visible head of the church. The Roman Catholic Church and its head, the Pope, for a time magnified itself even to the Prince of the Host. We can conclude. Roman Catholic Church obliterated the continual offering of Christ's blood on our behalf. The notion of the heavenly sanctuary and the priesthood of Christ was obliterated by the confessional during life and by purgatory after death. But there is a change in the air. And before I go through the change in the air, if you have been impacted, and you may have been indirectly by virtue of personal history or some other means by these Roman Catholic doctrines that overshadow the continual ministry of Jesus Christ, consider, doing away with them, referencing your Bible, and seeing what's truly available continually and directly through Jesus Christ. So the hope in the air is this, and we see this, by the way. If I was to ask for a show of hands as to how many people in this room were at one time Roman Catholics in their life, I wouldn't be surprised about 30% popped up. I've been in rooms where 11 out of 12 (laughs) raised their hands. But there's a change in the air. Catholics reading the Bible, as the Catholic Church now encourages, by the way, at least in this country, find that there's no substantiation in the Bible for masses benefiting people in purgatory. In fact, there's also no mention of purgatory in the Bible. They find out that the Eucharist is not a sacrifice, but rather a supper, shared at the table of the Lord they find there's nowhere in the Bible requiring us to confess our sins to a priest. It says only that we should confess our sins and forsake them. First John verses 1, I'm sorry, chapter 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28 verse 13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. I'll add, continually. They also find that we are taught in Matthew 6 verse 12 to seek forgiveness directly from our Father. Matthew 6 verse 12 says this, and we're all familiar with this, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. There's no requirement to recite litanies of our Father's and Hail Marys through the Bible, uh, though the Bible warns about repetitious prayer. See They find also that Christ is the one and only head of the church, not one of the heads. Ephesians five verse twenty three says this: For the husband is the head of the wife. You can forgive that, that part that went away a long time ago. As Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Yeah, I'll leave you to read Ephesians 23 on your own over and over and over again. Um, <clears throat> as the vision comes to a close and the little horn's description ends, Daniel hears two holy ones in conversation. One asked the other, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed." So as chapter 8 comes to an end the angel Gabriel interprets the vision. His interpretation includes the meaning of the beast powers, their horns, their succession, and the little horn power. I'm going to leave you to read that for yourself. As Gabriel closes, he makes this statement in Daniel 8 verse 26. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision. For it to many days in the future. He's referring to the 2300 evenings and mornings in the closing of the sanctuary. And for those of you that are going, oh no, now we're going to talk about that. No, we'll talk about the 2300 evenings and mornings next week as we open up the book of Uh, I should say, chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, because they are tied together. So I hope that each one of you is reminded that we have a continual ministry being carried out on our behalf by our Lord and Savior every minute, every second, every day, every hour, every week, every year. And there is nothing that stands between the Lord and us if we are willing to approach him. Thank you for listening to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast. You can find us at woodlandsadventist.org, and you can visit us anytime. You're more than welcome. God bless you, and have a great day.